Episode of Trans Regret Snoopy presents the Bible. I'm going to continue in um, another week's worth of letters from the New Testament. Um, I decided to pick a passage out of Colossians because uh, the the section between uh, Colossians two sixteen and three seventeen really spoke to me in the last few weeks. I can't really specifically say why that would be. I was having a long conversation and sharing some prayer with a friend of mine. and Well, I had this urge to flip to that letter. I don't know if that was God speaking to me or just this sort of um, magnetism towards this particular part of the scripture that I hadn't really focused very much on. I don't have a guest with me today. And uh, I haven't done a solo episode in quite some time. So if I stumble a bit or I seem uncomfortable or I seem at all um, jumbled or a little more confused than normal, you'll have to forgive me. We suffered a loss here at home. Uh, One of our uh, dogs one that was much older and and sicker than the one that you typically hear barking on my recordings um, had to uh, pass on about a week and a half ago. And it's been uh, really, really challenging to handle that lack in our home. And it was almost fitting that the the only recording that I've done really since then was the episode of Bible Buddies with House Cat, um, where we talked about Jeremiah, who's referred to as the weeping prophet, because I sounded on that recording, and I, I realized I still, I still probably do sound quite weepy. I have a very um, empathetic disposition and loss like this really takes it out of me. So without further ado, let's dive into the Oxford NRSV's uh, little intro for the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Colossae was a town in Phrygia in Asia Minor, not far from Ephesus. The church in Colossae had been founded, not by Paul, but probably by Epaphras. The letter is confident that believers are basically faithful to Paul's message, but right faith is threatened by the wrong teaching of persons who are not clearly identified. Our only clue to their teaching is the letter itself. It opposes certain ascetic practices like do not handle, do not taste from 221, severe treatment of the body from 223, and some ritual practices that may have come from the Jewish tradition, dietary regulations and festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, as well as philosophy and empty deceit. 
which seemed to mean esoteric teaching, and which included relying on the elemental spirits of the universe in 2, 8, and 20, a combination of Jewish ritual practices and Gnostic or theosophical speculation seems to have been what threatened the church at Colossae. Such syncretism or mixing of religious traditions was common at the time. Colossians opposes such teachings because they distribute the powers on which human beings depend among a variety of sources. Similarly, the introduction in the Voice Bible says Paul wrote this letter about 25 years after his call to be an emissary for Jesus. The headstrong Paul, who had planted churches and pioneered the gospel, had now become an elder statesman for the growing movement. His reputation was so great that he could send a letter to a church he had neither planted nor even visited and expect to be received as a voice that must be heard. When Paul wrote this letter, he was in prison. The people in Colossae would have known there would have known where, so there was no need to put it in the letter. But that important detail is lost today. It's often said that he wrote it from prison in Rome. Although Ephesus or Caesarea cannot be ruled out, the fact that the Lord's emissary often found himself in prison because his message clashed with the local political, economic, and religious powers. But even as a prisoner, Paul was able to find a secretary or urge a co-worker to help him craft and dispatch a letter. Colossae was an important city located about 100 miles east of Ephesus. There were many religious options in Colossae, Jewish and pagan, and apparently some in Colossae thought that Jesus should simply be added into the mix. But for Paul, Jesus is no add-on. As the creator and sustainer, as the head of the church, Jesus deserves their full and undivided attention. According to Paul, Jesus came to liberate not only individuals, but all creation from the powers of darkness. Paul prays that God will encourage the believers in Colossae to live with spiritual perspective and that their lives will reflect the transforming power of Jesus. One of the best known passages in this letter is the wonderful hymn about Jesus found in uh, chapter 1, verse 15 through 21. It celebrates not only his role as the creator and sustainer of the world, but also as the reconciler and head of the church, which is his body, then challenges the believers in Colossae to turn from their past as if their old selves were dead and to keep their eyes fixed on the goal of new life hidden in Jesus. Chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. Paul speaks individually to wives, husbands, children, slaves, and masters, and finally asks them to pray with him that we can go on telling the mystery of the anointed one. Paul truly sees all believers as sharing in his ministry and his imprisonment. So that's a little bit of background on this letter. Um, it's clear that this was a time in the church where so much was uncertain. It's clear that this was a time um, in the church where people were experimenting with faith. They wanted to bring new elements of faith into the fold of Christianity, um, new practices, old practices. They were trying to basically fold it into a catch-all religion. The problem with that is, is that Christianity at its heart is already a catch-all religion. It doesn't ask you to necessarily 
continue with rituals that you were not a part of prior to um, joining the church. It doesn't ask you to be circumcised if you're a Gentile, simply to be shown to be a part of this covenant. What it does ask you to do is change your heart and change your mind and uh, change the way you act, not with regards to specific spiritual rituals, but with the way that you present yourself to the world at large and the way that you pray. Um, rather than focusing the entirety of your religion on the rote memorization of prayer or necessarily the, the rhythm of particular festivals and holidays, Christianity only asks you to believe in Jesus, to believe in his sacrifice and the atonement that came with his sacrifice, to change your heart, to not sin, and if you do sin, to confess those sins so that you can be forgiven through the covenant that was created, that atoning sacrifice that Jesus made. So let's dive into the, the text. I'm flipping back to my ESV. Now, to be honest, I've been reading a little bit more of the NIV, which is the new international version. Uh, this is one I only have on my phone. I don't have a physical copy of it yet, so... I will be um, picking one up, and, and, and really there's nothing quite like having the book in front of you. There's nothing quite like having the physical book in front of you. But I would encourage anybody, like I've done several times on this show so far, to go and seek out a version of the Bible that speaks to you. Seek out one that is at least somewhat well-respected or well-researched, even if it's um, sort of an oddball one like The Voice or like The Message. Because if any of these translations, if any of these books connect you to God, if any of these books speak Jesus's words to you clearer than another, that's the one that you should be going with. Now, obviously, there are limitations to this, and some books take liberties that others don't. But like I've said before, too, the really, really important parts of the Bible speak through any of these translations. The really, really crucial passages are essentially untouched in most of these translations because the really, really core beliefs of Christianity are quite simple. So we're going to jump in the ESV at chapter 2, verse 16. In the ESV, um, the header on this section is called, Let No One Disqualify You. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished, and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. This is a really, really dense paragraph. So let's go back to 16. What Paul is saying here is that at this time in the church, people were kind of clamoring for authority. People were kind of clamoring to um, and, and trying to get one up on each other with regards to this is the way that we're going to practice or this is the way that we're going to practice or this is the old way of things, so this is how we must continue into the new way. 
only accept now Jesus is here and we know about what he did for us, but we still have to um, commit to these same rituals and these same practices. Now, largely the ones that are being referred to here are actually um, Jewish practices, things like Passover. So Paul's not saying that these festivals or new moons or Sabbaths are wrong. Uh, he's not saying that it is wrong to practice those things inherently. But what he is saying is that these are just a shadow of the things to come. These particular pieces of faith are not and will never be as important as the substance which belongs to Christ, the substance of the church, the substance of belief, the core of Christianity is Jesus Christ. So he goes on, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in the tale about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Asceticism is a practice of denying oneself the pleasures and the indulgences of a given society. Asceticism focuses on honing your mind in and withdrawing from society at large and not allowing yourself to be given over to the indulgences that the world allows and in some cases the world encourages. This is very, very difficult today. And Paul is emphasizing that no one should be disqualified from faith because of um, accusations that they're not adequately uh, ascetic enough, that they're not adequately pulling themselves away from modernity and committing themselves only to faith. Obviously, that's the ideal. I would love to be uh, in, in a monastery somewhere um, far away in the hills with nothing to do all day but read the Bible and to pray, maybe tend a garden, things that would glorify God. I think it's a wonderful thing. I would love that, I think, more than anything else. Um, but the reality of the world that we live in doesn't allow that. Most of us do not have the luxury to commit our entire life in practice and in ritual and in action specifically to God. We can devote our hearts. We can devote our minds. We can carry through in whatever it is that we do in this world, carry through the spirit of Christ, and we can do what we do to glorify Christ. And, and given what career you're in, you may be better or worse at this. But most of us do not have the ability to just say, I'm done working. I'm just going to pray now. So Paul is saying, don't let anyone in any of these temples or any of these churches tell you that you are insufficiently uh, a member of the church because you haven't withdrawn entirely from the world. But don't also give yourself over entirely to these sensuous experiences the worship of angels. Hold fast the head, which is Christ. Hold fast the focus, the, the brain, 
the, the knowledge center, hold fast to that, become a part of the body, which is held together with ligaments and joints. All of us, little bones, little cells, little pores in the skin, little folds in the brain, we're all part of this body of Christ, this body of God. So whatever you are doing and whatever you do participate in, make sure that you don't disengage yourself from the body of God, from the body of Christ, from the church. And we get on to verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, this is interesting because essentially what's being said here is we ought to die to the world. Christ died to the world. And obviously Christ's death in the world was was much different and had a much different purpose than most of our lives have. But what Christ did was to separate from the world and separate from the pressures of the world. He did not sin. He did not give over to the indulgences of the world. So we too should be mindful of that. We too should be able to separate what is good advice with regards to how we should operate in the world from empty practices that actually do no good and actually don't help us focus our hearts right on God. He even says, he goes so far as to say that asceticism and severity to the body, severity to the body would be um, to deny oneself, to fast, to um, self-flagellate, to do things that are supposed to, in theory, um, center your mind in your body in a, in a way that brings you closer to God. But, Paul says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, that's challenging. If even withdrawing from the world and from the practices of indulgent culture and fasting and not giving ourselves over to sinful indulgence, if even that is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, what is? The NRSV has a few footnotes here. And I'd like to flip into those because this is a really challenging bit of writing. In the footnote for 216 through 23, the Colossian error involved excessive ritualism, asceticism, and the worship of angels. Excessive. The translation in 218 in the NRSV 
actually says, do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels. Self-abasement is another word for asceticism. Dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows with it a growth that is from God. God gave us the church. God gave us the church to connect to each other. Flipping back over to the voice, chapter 18 says, don't be cheated out of the prize by others who are peddling the worship of heavenly beings and false humility. People like this run about telling whoever will listen what they claim to have seen, but in reality, they testify only to an inflated mind saturated in conceit, not in the spirit. They are detached from the very head that nourishes and connects the whole body with all of its nerves and ligaments. Body that grows by the kind of growth that can only come from God. Listen, if you have died with the anointed one to the elemental spirits of the cosmos, then why are you submitting yourselves to its rules as if you still belong to the world? You hear, don't handle this, don't taste that, don't even touch it. But everything they are obsessed about will eventually decay with use. These rules are just human commands and teachings. Here's what they're promoting. Fabricated religion, self-humiliation, and bodily abuse. No matter which way they try to tether their bodies, they cannot harness their desires. Really interesting. I actually love the way the voice puts this because I think it's a little bit clearer. We get wrapped up in these sort of vague, old-sounding terms. And when you put it this way, he's simply saying that there is a too far. There is a, a way to sink so far into these rituals and sink so far into um, uh, self-abasement that you then are just making a show and not actually withholding yourself from desire, from indulgence, and from sin. Particularly interesting, too, because this message of uh, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink is an argument that actually pops up a few different times in the Bible. There's a lot of warnings about... Um, not indulging in excess or not being gluttonous, not being drunken, uh, retaining a sober mind so that you can continue to focus your efforts, your energy, and your mind on God. Paul's actually saying here, don't worry so much about what they say about the food you eat and what you drink. There were some very strict dietary restrictions from the old Jewish faith. And a lot of Gentiles who had come to Christianity were unfamiliar and uncomfortable with the dietary restrictions that had been placed because people had really, really become committed to being um, obedient to these dietary practices. They saw that it brought them, they felt that it brought them closer to God. And 
so far back as Genesis 1, we have questions about what are humans meant to eat? Uh, what are they given by God to eat? And what are they given rule over? And does being given rule over something uh, mean that you are meant to eat it? Is that holy in the eyes of God? So in Matthew 15, uh, this is verse 16, he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the evil come, uh, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. There was a tradition at the time that you had to wash your hands before you eat. In hindsight, seems like good advice. Uh, given what they were working with back then, probably a really good idea. Although maybe not necessarily uh, as useful given that, you know, clean running water wasn't, um, wasn't a common occurrence. In Acts 10, there is a question here of uh, what could be eaten. And this is a section that starts at uh, 10, verse 9. Peter's vision says, The next day as they were approaching their journey, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop at the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heaven open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. This is in red text. So it's Jesus speaking to him. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. The gifts of this world, then, are said to be gifts from God. God gave you that food. Do not call it common. Do not deny eating it. It is still a gift from God. So while in other parts of the Sermon on the Mount and, and other places where Jesus is accused of being heretical uh, or um, blaspheming the old laws, the writings of Moses, he says, I've come to fulfill the law. I haven't come to change it. But I would argue that there are some changes being made here. Um, changes that I think ultimately focus our minds on the things that are actually uh, really, really, truly important with regards to our eternal, eternal souls and our salvation. So basically, dwell a little bit less on whether or not the food that you're eating or the things that you drink are going to condemn you to hell. Because it's not what you put in your body that's going to condemn you to hell. It's what's in your heart, what comes out of your mouth, the way you speak, the way you feel, your commitment to God within. 
your mind being right. That's what brings you closer to God. So moving on to chapter three in Colossians, this is titled, Put on the New Self. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. When I had my friend Michelle Perez on the show to discuss the settling of disputes and squashing the beef, we went over this passage briefly and, and a few others that dealt with this very thing. But I'm focusing here a little bit more on what, what happens to us when we give ourselves over to Christ, when we take ourselves away from the repeated, um, rote, everyday ritual, and rather focus our entire heart and our entire mind on God. Do not lie to each other, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in, rich, in you richly, teaching and admonish, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, given that it is Palm Sunday today, it is the beginning of the... Lenten Holy Week. We are approaching quickly the observation of Good Friday and of Easter. This was the final week in the Christian calendar that we observe. This was the final week of Jesus's life as a man on earth. So his entire ministry, he had been wandering around spreading a message of inclusion. 
all the while trying to get people to change their hearts, trying to get people to focus their minds on something that really mattered. Because while it's easy to simply go through the motions, to show up on uh, Sunday to church, to observe the Sabbath, if you're Jewish, you observe the Sabbath on Saturdays, to, to practice the right dietary restrictions. Or if you're more pagan, to be worshiping the right earthly uh, spirits or uh, angels, the bit about angels is a little confusing because when we hear angel in the Bible, we think these multidimensional um, creatures that deliver God's word to people on earth. But there's a good chance that in the translation, the meaning of that might have actually been lost a little bit because the, the, the worship that they're referring to there isn't like humans worshiping Gabriel or Michael. Um, the, the, the word there is humans are worshiping these heavenly bodies, these, um, these creatures of the ethereal, of the afterlife or the underworld or the heavens, the little h heavens, multiple heavens. Um, so when you hear a criticism of uh, someone worshiping angels in this way, uh, it's not like uh, Protestants accuse Catholics of idolatry for praying to saints. Uh, it's more um, praying to something that is out of this world, but not God. So in the observation of this Holy Week, rather than go through and read the story of Jesus's crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and I will be releasing an episode about that in one way or another, I think that the message here should be that each of us will die. Each of us will have an opportunity to, to see what our lives have given to us in the afterlife, whether we have worshiped right, whether we have committed ourselves to the right causes, or whether all of that ritual was even important to God. And something tells me it's, it's not the most important thing to him because what he really wants is for us to turn away from sin, to be good to one another, to love one another, to be welcoming to one another, to be harmonious in the ways that the parts of a body are harmonious. He wants us to embrace one another and cling to one another so that he, the head, the brain, the mind behind the body can guide us all. So part of that, part of that um, focus on living a right life here does include a kind of asceticism, but it's not an entire um, disconnection from the world itself. We are not, we're not afforded this, most of us in our lives. But it is a spiritual death to sin. We have to die to sin. We have to die to the impure and unclean and mean and cruel parts of ourselves. We have to die to that earth 
We have to die to a world that encourages other people to step on each other's necks to get by. We have to die to this world that tells us that any amount of sexual indulgence or gluttony or cruelty is just a part of life. That's the world that we have to die to. Spend less time worrying about the exact tenets of your diet. Spend more time worrying about what you do with yourself in this world in the context of the body of Christ, in the context of the family of the church. Believers, all of us believers, Catholics or Protestants, Lutherans, non-denominationals, Jewish people, Muslims, we're all going to have a chance to explain ourselves in death. We're all going to have a chance to be saved. So what matters is, is that you walk this line of not giving yourself over to cruelty, of dying to that sin, so that when you are resurrected like Jesus was resurrected, not on earth, but into heaven, that it will be seen that you led a life that was Christ-like, that you followed the teachings of Christ, not the teachings of Paul, not even the teachings of Moses necessarily. The old covenant has passed away, a new covenant has begun. But it all boils down to love. It all boils down to peace among the people. So that's the ultimate message here. To me, it's obviously a complicated time when Paul was writing Colossians. It's obviously a time where folks were itching to climb their way up the ladder. Just like today, there is a church hierarchy. There are people who are seen as more pious, more holy. And just like a very prominent uh, Christian leader who passed away some time ago was just recently shown to be a hypocrite, an absolute hypocrite, who manifested a culture in his church of deceit, of sexual immorality. He was well-respected. He, by all outward appearances, gave people the idea that this guy had it dialed in. This guy was just ascetic enough. You know, he, he, he participated in all of the right rituals. He knew all the prayers. He could recite all kinds of scripture without, you know, without even pausing to think of what it was. It was right there in his head. And the whole time he was hurting people. And the whole time he was betraying his family. So don't let a struggle to climb to the top of this mountain of the earthly church stop you from behaving only in the way that we're called to behave in the Bible in the teachings of Jesus, and in giving ourselves over to Christ, we do die in a way. But it's only a death to the things that will eventually destroy us.
The poem today is by Brian Ellis from his book, American Dust Revisited. The poem is called Lift. Billy was sick and not getting better. It was too simple, the common cold, the inability to cope with it undressed our poverty. I lived inside of her life, a shivering weight broke night shouting and jealous. Billy is not a woman built for vulnerability. It is an ill-fitting jacket. But winter is constantly ready to teach us new levels of humility. Some nights she got so weak, she could not sit up in bed. I would hold her, slip her arms over my shoulders and lift. I am an unstrong man, except in this. I know what love is. Love is not getting sick. Love is practical. It has to be. I had no other option. Billy and I, we are not people of options. Love is not an option. Thanks, everybody. Sign